Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm Oliver Wiseman, editor of CapEx and Free Exchange host. This week, we're tackling one of the most important economic trends in recent history. When we think about the economy, we tend to think about stuff. Goods are manufactured and sold. Factories are built and upgraded. Innovation gives us shiny new gadgets we can hold in our hands. But this is becoming a less and less accurate way of thinking about things. Increasingly, intangible assets are what matter. According to Jonathan Haskell and Stian Westlake, the authors of the brilliant Capitalism Without Capital, These intangible assets don't play by the basic laws of economics. And so the rise of assets you can't touch, they argue, is having a big impact on how the economy works. Haskell and Westlake start with a simple, even obvious insight and end with an important and thoughtful book about the nature of the modern economy. Their work has received high praise from high places. Bill Gates, for example, calls capitalism without capital required reading for policymakers. For this week's episode of Free Exchange, I spoke to Stian Westlake about his book, which is out now in paperback, and the implications of the ideas contained within it. I started by asking him to outline his basic thesis. So me and my co-author, Jonathan Haskell of Imperial College, had for quite a while been asking ourselves the question, what's really going on in the economy? When you heard people, when you heard economists, policymakers talking about innovation, talking about economic growth, they'd very often talk about things that seem to refer to the world of manufacturing. So they talk about, you know, this is what, this is how many cars we're making, this is this is how many patents we're filing, this is how much R&D we're doing, which is something that tends to be concentrated in the manufacturing sector. And we just thought, this doesn't seem to bear much reflection to the world that we know, the kind of jobs that people we know do, the jobs that most people who, who, who work in the UK do. We have a service-dominated industry, uh, a service-dominated economy. People tend to work as much with their minds or, or, or in the service sector as other areas. We thought, this just doesn't resonate with what's going on. And Jonathan had been working for some time on a way of measuring capital that looked more at how the economy worked today. So rather than thinking about just factories or buildings or machines he was thinking about the the items of the 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 types of capital that you can't see or touch so the ideas that arise from r&d the brands that arise from marketing the supply chains and organizational structures that arise from kind of what people do in offices on a day-to-day basis and if you think about the modern economy those are the things for the most part that give businesses and give industries their durable value 
And so we said, well, goodness me, let's, let's look at how this can be measured, something that Jonathan had been working on and other economists have been working on for a while. Um, and then we thought, well, you know, what are the implications of this? And really what the book was based on is firstly a desire to explain this change in the economy, this move from things you can see and touch to things that you can't see and touch, mm -hmm. but also to say how might this explain some big changes in the economy that people seem to be worried about now. And, and for that to be, for this to be a phenomenon worth writing a book about, um, there have to be differences between tangible and intangible um, capital uh, beyond just the fact you can't touch it. Um, so what makes intangible capital kind of interesting, distinct from, from old-fashioned sort of factories and, and things like that? Well, we think there's a few really important economic differences between the way intangible capital works and tangible capital works, which is kind of what accounts for all these, these, these changes. Um, and in good authorial style, we've kind of got, we've given them a framework. We've called this the 4S framework, because there are four of them and they all become Excellent. an S. So if I might go through them. The first way that intangibles are different is they're scalable. That's mm -hmm. the first S. So if you imagine, let, let's talk about uh, minicabs. If you think of a minicab company like Addison Lee in London, um, every time they want to take a bunch more passengers, they need another cab. So the, the, the vehicles, their tangible capital, doesn't really scale. You need to buy more if you want to do more business. Mm. But then if you think of Uber or Lyft, if you think of um, a company that's perhaps more based on intangible capital, their intangible capital is their algorithms and their software. Now, those things are scalable. So Uber can more or less transfer their algorithm to a new city. Um, if they double the number of rides they take in a month, the algorithm will more or less scale without significant further investment. And we notice that intangible capital tends to have this scalable the second characteristic is spillovers. That's our second S. And what that means in economic jargon is if you run a business and you invest in some intangibles, let's say you do some R&D and come up with a fantastic new technology for a new product, it's quite hard to be certain that your business is going to get the exclusive benefit of that idea or even that you'll get any of the benefit of that idea. And, you know, there are all these wonderful stories like how um, the British... Um, conglomerate EMI invented the CT scanner, this kind of incredible medical breakthrough back in the 1960s. But EMI and EMI shareholders saw virtually none of the money from this fantastic invention because it turned out that General Electric and Siemens in Germany almost immediately came in, designed their own version of the product inspired by EMI and cornered the market. Um, and that's a kind of classic example of the spillovers, uh, spillovers at work. The third S is sunkenness, and economists out there will be aware of this idea of sunk costs, mm -hmm. costs that are kind of hard to recover if mm -hmm. the business fails. And intangible investments are very often sunk costs in a way that tangible investments aren't. So an, an interesting example, if you think of Monarch Airlines, the UK low-cost carrier that um, not all that long ago went bust. Monarch Airlines had a bunch of tangible assets and a bunch of intangible assets. The tangible assets were the planes they had. The intangible assets were things like their landing slots and their brand. Um, the planes, as soon as Monarch went bust, were immediately sent off to other leasing companies and some of them were flying again very quickly. Those were, those were not sunk costs. They were very easy to recycle mm. in case of bankruptcy. 
Um, the landing slots, it turns out, there were months and months of legal wrangling about not even what should happen to these landing slots, but even who owned them. Did Monarch really own them? Should they be reassigned? Um, so there's a lot of doubt about who owns these things. And in some cases, as with Brad, the brand was almost worthless once, once, once the company went bust. So these intangibles tend to be sunk costs. And then the final S mm. is synergies. Um, and the point about synergies is that in- intangible assets are unusually good when you combine them with other intangible assets. And um, one great example of that is the iPhone. I have an iPhone si- sitting on the desk in front of me here. Um, it's you know, the, arguably one of the most profitable consumer products ever created. But it's kind of a mixture of quite a lot of different intangible assets. That's why it's so good. So there's a bunch of technologies in the iPhone. But actually, you know, those technologies are more or less available to anyone making smartphones back in 2007, 2008 when the mm-hmm. iPhone came out. There's no reason why the iPhone should be any better than these kind of weird Nokia things that we never talk about anymore. Um, there was the design. When people talk about how wonderful Sir Johnny Ive is, he designed this kind of amazing form factor that was very intuitive to use. Mm-hmm. Um, we also think about there are these business assets, the fact that the App Store was developed, which allowed so many apps to be developed. That was a, that's a significant intangible asset. And finally, the marketing operation. So one of the, the way that Apple created a channel so that mobile phone operators would give you basically a cheap iPhone. All of those things have, all of those things are assets. They're durable things mm. and business gets a long-term benefit from. Um, but it was the combination of those that created this multi-billion dollar product because we know that people who had just one of them, they were much less valuable. And again, with tangible assets, that are fungible, you see that effect much less. So our four S's basically are echo, mean that in an intangible economy will behave in interestingly different ways mm-hmm. to a tangible-based economy. Mm-hmm. And where, and, and I guess the next obvious question is where we are in the on the on the tangible to intangible curve. You know, is this something you have spotted a new trend in the economy that we're just seeing the seeing the benefits of, or, or not the benefits necessarily, but the consequences of, or are we? Has it already happened? You know, where where are we? So one of the things we do in the book is we look at the data over time. And um, it turns out, and my co-authors have done quite a lot of the empirical work on this along with others, um, it turns out that this is a, that intangible investment is a very steady, long-term growing trend. Um, probably, if you look at, say, the US or the UK, it was about a decade ago or so that intangible investment exceeded tangible investment. So. Um, mm-hmm. About 10 years ago, UK and US businesses started doing more intangible investment each year than they were doing tangible investment. Countries like France and Germany are a little bit slower to catch up. Countries like Scandinavia may be a little bit ahead of us. But if you look at rich world countries now, pretty much all of them, any given year, there'll be more intangible investment than tangible. But what's really interesting, if you look at this phenomena, um, phenomenon, it's a very long-term phenomenon. So you can trace the rise of intangibles back to, in some cases, data sets from the 1940s and 1950s. And it's one of those very satisfying lines when you look at it on a chart. It's basically an arrow going more or less smoothly straight up over time. Right. You know, I guess one of the responses to your book might be that this is not as exciting on you as you claim. And you could say, I mean, this is just purely to play devil's advocate, but you could say that if you were making the best violins in the world in the 16th century, like the and compare that to the iPhone, they were something that uh, you know everyone had the technology and tools needed to make them, um, and a forest nearby to you know collect whatever. Yeah. 
be, but you had a, a reputation, a sort of basic kind of advertising thing going on probably and, and lots of the things that you kind of identify in, say, an iPhone. I think that's a really good challenge and I think it really highlights what is unusual or what's special about this phenomenon. So you're absolutely right. They've always been intangible investments. They've always been brands. They've always been new ideas. But what's significant now is the quantity. So it's this fact that now a greater percentage of investment that business makes is intangible than tangible. So yes, as we're saying, there were there was R and D in the nineteen sixties, there was R and D in the nineteen forties, there's R and D in the nineteenth century. Um, what's significant now is how much of of, of 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 the total annual flow of investment is represented by intangible investments like that. Um, and one of the consequences of that, because this is a gradual change, this isn't like sort of one year there wasn't blockchain and then mm. someone started using blockchain. Mm. This is much more of a gradual change. It, it means that we think this is a plausible explanation for some of these long-term phenomena that have been growing in the economy. Right, and let's move on to that. And, and, and just as a way into that, I think it's worth pointing out that what you've just said means that this is not, even though it's tempting to look at the title of your book and kind of probably lots of the write-ups about it and stuff, and to think... Uh, this is a book about Google and Facebook and Apple, which it is, but it's actually about the whole economy, right? I mean, the point is, this is not a book about just about Silicon Valley or... That's, that's absolutely right. And one story we tell in the book is um, we look at quite a lot, not just of tech businesses, but of very, uh, the absolute opposite, very non-tech businesses, mm -hmm. very physical businesses. And one of the examples I particularly like is the example of the gym industry. Right. So the gym industry, you think, is like the least intangible industry there is. It's, 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 it's very Actual, physical. It's literal weights. It's <laughs> yeah. about lifting weights and yeah. physical appearances. Um, and it's interesting, if you look at, say, an early gym, if you look at the kind of, um, the, the classic early gym was Gold's Gym, which was what Arnold Schwarzenegger's mm -hmm. 1977 movie Pumping Iron was based on. That was largely a physical business. There were weights, there were weight machines, there was a building. Real estate, and, uh, yeah. Real estate, that was, th those were tangible assets. Um, there was a brand, but the brand wasn't worth very much because initially there was only one Gold's Gym. Um, if you look at a gym nowadays, there are kind of two interesting differences. The first thing is if you go to a local branch of LA Fitness or whatever you're a member of, um, you'll see there'll be lots of intangibles that may be quite hard to see. So there'll be software systems that will track that will, that will track names. There's a very complex marketing operation because obviously the way to make money in gyms is to get people to join your gym and never come. Which they think <laughs> quite hard about. There'll be operating processes that are often proprietary where people are trained, which you wouldn't have had back in the, the 1970s. Um, but then the really interesting thing, the second aspect is there are now some of the most profitable businesses in the gym industries are almost totally intangible. So if any of you have done a body pump class or any of these high-intensity interval training classes, body pump is run by a company called Les Mills based mm -hmm. on the South Island of New Zealand. Um, what Les Mills does, I mean, they do have a few tangible assets in a studio in New Zealand, but basically what they do is they secure music rights to the soundtracks for workout videos. They design workout routines um, and they have a distribution network where they send these videos and instructions out to gyms all around the world that are licensees and they make an awful lot of money out of doing this. So you see this world where once upon a time this very physical business, the business of literally pumping iron, has changed into a business that is just totally shot through with these intangibles, whether they are kind of research or music rights or, 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 or organisational structures. And 
let's move on then to these big economic trends that you guys think are at least partly explained by the, the phenomenon you're describing, um, which are sort of, to put it, I think the, the, the quickest way of putting it would be both the, both the kind of secular stagnation, so slowing growth rates, um, and uh, by my count, maybe two kinds of inequality, one between um, income inequality between people and the other is between kind of between firms and you have these winner take all firms and everyone gets less left in the dust so there's obviously a lot in there yeah. but well should we maybe talk about inequality first yes yeah, 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 stagnation yeah. afterwards um so i think when it comes to inequality obviously we're in a period where inequality is at quite a high level um you know rose quite sharply since the 80s have been somewhat flat but at quite a mm-hmm. quite a high plateau um in the last decade or so um we think, I mean, first You're going to come back to your four S's again, aren't you? That's, I, well, something I tells me that. Eventually will. <laughs> um, obviously, it goes without saying that that is, that, 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 that is quite similar to the period in which intangible investment has been increasing. Um, but I think there are a couple of interesting mechanisms going on here. The first of which is that what we've also seen over that period is appealing apart between the most productive and profitable businesses in any given industry or country and the rest. This is something that the OECD have done a lot of work on and um, that, uh, that, that, that has been quite linked to the rise of income inequality as well. There's some great work by Sol and Bloom in the US who've used census data and they basically showed you can explain a lot of the rise of income inequality, not by the increase in wage differentials between, say, CEOs and janitors, but by just the fact that CEOs in Google are earning much more than CEOs, right. and they also ran firms, and the janitors who work for those firms are earning more, and so forth. So the, this gap between the leader and the laggard firms explains a big chunk of the income inequality. And what we would argue, this is there's, there's a big debate going on about why this gap has increased. We think you can boil this down to intangibles. And in fact, since we wrote this, so in the book we do some very, the, the back of the envelope analysis, which suggests that Actually, these leader firms are the ones that have valuable intangibles, and we've been thrilled that since we wrote the book, some more careful empirical people have done some more detailed work that shows that that is almost certainly true. So it's these intangibles, given that they're scalable, so if you have a big successful business like Google, your valuable intangibles go a long way, mm-hmm. and because they have synergies, you know, if you were, again, Google or Facebook, the benefit of investing in an additional and intangible asset is all the higher because you can combine them with things you've already got. Right. Um, so in that world of where capital is more scalable, where capital has more synergies between them, you would expect to see leader firms rising and the, the, the rest stagnating. So that's one explanation that helps explain some of the, 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 the rise of income inequality. Um, we've also got this question of wealth inequality, what you know, Thomas Piketty talked about um, in, in, in his rightly famous book, and of course, one of the your, your your readers will no doubt know that one of the interesting critiques or analyses of Piketty mm. pointed out that a lot of the rise of wealth inequality that Piketty observed was actually driven by property prices. Yes. And this is not just any property prices. We all know that the prices of pro- the property that's become particularly valuable is property in the world's thriving cities, prime prime, prime real estate. And one of the ironic consequences of the rise of intangible capital. Because it has spillovers and because it has synergies, because people, because there are, uh, because there are very high rewards to bringing these ideas together, 
it means that the places where people bring these ideas together, whether that's Silicon Valley or Shoreditch or Cambridge or uh, Tel Aviv, um, that those places become particularly desirable. And those are indeed the places where we've seen property prices rise, rise most, most sharply. Exacerbated, no doubt, by things like zero interest rate policies, mm -hmm. but you know, the, the reason why it's happened in those places mm -hmm. is, 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 is because of this intangible economy. So if you buy this argument that a lot of what Piketty is observing is driven by this very tangible asset of property, that's the one tangible asset that is dependent on intangibles, it's based mm -hmm. on, on clusters of knowledge coming together. So that's another area in which this big change in the economy has driven, has, has driven inequality. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. And just on, just on yeah. that point, there's a sort of parad one of the reasons it's such an interesting argument in your book is um, it's, a, it's a very counterintuitive point, actually both the points you just made, because while the thing we were always told about uh, tech, um, you know, it, basically intangible investment, was this meant that um, barriers, to, barriers to entry vanished, and anyone could be the next, um, you know, yesterday's startups, today's uh, the biggest companies in the world today. And so there was this, this idea of kind of this kind of investment opening up, opening up opportunities to people. And it's sort of, that is true, but it's also true that it has this kind of um, winner-takes-all effect. I, I think this is one of the most interesting dynamics going on in the world economy at the moment. And there's a real mystery here. We don't know how this is going to play out. Because, as you say... There is a big winner-takes-all effect. If you're Google, if you're Facebook, if you're Uber, you're doing extremely well. The flip side of that, to come back to the four S's, relates to your, the spillovers and the scalability. Mm -hmm. Because the other thing that we know is these ideas tend to slip away from businesses in a way that, you know, if you own a big steel mill, only you can use your steel mill, mm -hmm. no one else can use your steel mill. But if you invent the search engine, or if you're Yahoo with a very successful search engine business in the early 2000s, it was pretty easy for Google to accept the idea of search engine and they got some spillovers from US government funded research and from academic mm -hmm. research. And because of scalability, because these businesses can go from 0 to 60 very quickly, as it were, um, 
Google went from being this kind of tiny business that looked like an insignificant competitor to a giant like Yahoo to being absolutely dominant and who talks about Yahoo anymore. Right. Um, and so, so, that's, so that's the dynamic. Which of those two forces will, 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 will dominate? Um, some of your listeners may remember the antitrust hearings um, that first of all Microsoft and more recently Google have gone through. And one of the defen- one of the defences that these firms used before the European Commission in the US was to say, well, you know, we may look like Goliath now, but if you look back at history, if you look back at the history of IBM or Microsoft talked about, sorry, Google talked about the history of Microsoft, the nature of this economy sooner or later, David will come and chuck a stone at our forehead, mm-hmm. and we'll be lying in the dust. Mm-hmm. And that is that is one possibility that what this new economy has is these kind of punctuated equilibria where you'll see great concentration for a while and then you'll see the, the, the incumbents trashed. Investment is obviously something that um, is at the very heart of, of your book and a hugely important, important thing in the economy. When people uh, worry about the state of the economy, the state of capitalism uh, today, often what is pointed out is that firms are making more and more money, especially these um, when the, 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 you know, the real winners of the economy are making more and more money and yet not investing as much as they, as they could, could be into, back into the, that business. So you know, what is the kind of intangibles, Steve and Westlake, capitalism without <laughs> capital kind of take on that dynamic? So I think there's a couple of levels to this. There's been quite a lot of recent attention paid to the idea of, or paid to the idea that markups are rising. And what, what economists mean by markups is effectively profit, the kind of mm-hmm. the, the, the cost of doing a business taken away from, 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 from the revenues you earn. And there's been some work where people have said, goodness me, markups have risen very sharply over the last 30 or 40 years. And the implication is, well, how can businesses make these sort of these, these apparently excessive profits? That must have happened because something's gone wrong with competition. And for example, there was a very interesting piece by Liam Halligan in the Telegraph um, not so long ago saying this is a problem and what we need to do is we need to get we need to put our foot back on the pedal of competition policy. Um, now I think intangibles, the, the, the importance of intangibles complicates that story quite a bit. The first reason is if you look really carefully into this data of supposedly rising markups, it turns out that for the most part the markups don't take into account intangible investment. So the money that firms spend on R&D on branding, on organisational development, on commissioning the next Harry Potter script, on these kind of things, is actually not accounted for in those markups. And if you take those, what accountants would call SG&A, sales and general administrative expenses, but it includes all of that, if you take those out, markups have stayed much flatter over the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. So actually what you're seeing is a change in the cost that businesses incur from the traditional cost of goods sold, you know, the, 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 the labour and machinery cost that goes into your mobile phone or whatever, to these intangibles like R&D, like marketing expenses. So that's just a kind of change from a less advanced to a more advanced economy. So partly part of this problem goes away. But it also means that to the extent we're worried about competition, to the extent we're worried about the gap between the leader and laggard firms, um, it might not be because our competition authorities have suddenly got lazy or sluggish and I think if you know if you look at what's been going on in competition authorities whether it's in the UK or the EU or the US if anything they've got more assiduous over years competition policy is taken pretty seriously if you ask any economist they think competition mm-hmm. policy is really important mm-hmm. um, 
So it's not that they're doing a worse job. It's that because of the structure of the economy, that job has got much harder. Right. And I think if you're a policymaker, that's a bigger challenge. Because if you used to do something well, and you, but now you don't do it well, it's really easy to just stop being such an idiot and you get it right again. Mm-hmm. If actually you're doing as well as you ever were, but the job has got much harder, that's a much bigger challenge. Just more generally for, for, um, for business, for investors, for other people, how does this change the way they should think about the economy? How does this change the way they should um, kind of make decisions, whether it's about a, com- a company or a given investment or borrowing money to invest or, you know, lots of these decisions? Well, let's, let's talk a little, about, a little bit about investing in companies. Mm-hmm. First of all. What does this mean if you own stocks and shares, if you're interested in financial markets? Um, one, thing that, um, one thing that we know is that over time, because of the rise of intangibles, it's become much harder to understand the value of a company based just on its financial accounts. And there's been some fascinating analysis done looking at how much of a company's stock price can you uh, calculate based on its P&L and its balance sheet, and how's that changed over time. If you go back to the 1950s or the 1960s, when intangible investment was quite low, actually the accounts are pretty informative. You know, there was still a job to be a stock picker, mm. but you, for that basic fundamental analysis told you quite a lot. Mm. If you look at companies that were incorporated, or public companies that were incorporated in the last 20 years, the explanatory power of the accounts, in statistical terms, the R-squared, has significantly gone down. And actually, what's on what, what, what the, the, the financial accounts prepare for you is almost totally uninformative. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because intangible assets, for the most part, aren't on company balance sheets. They just, accounting standards don't report them. They just go straight through the P&L like mm-hmm. smoke. Um, but also, because to come back to the, the four S's, because the value is so dependent on synergies, because the spillovers, meaning it's hard to pin down, you need to understand the intangibles in much more granular detail. Right. And it's kind of interesting, if you talk to equity analysts, if you talk to equity analysts who work in big, tangible capital intensive industries, like the postal service right. industry or something like that. Or they mines will, or... Or mines. Yeah, yeah. They will be doing a lot of... They, 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 will, they will care a lot about balance sheets and so forth. If you look at people who work in industries like pharmaceuticals, and pharma has always been an intangible intensive mm-hmm. sector, um, it's just more and more the economy is becoming like pharma. Mm-hmm. Those guys will be looking at individual drug pipelines and valuing them very much based on kind of intelligence that you typically won't find much of in the company accounts. Mm. And, um, and just sorry, yeah. on that, does that mean from an investment point of view, if you're just a, if you're just a sort of investor in a wide range of industries, you sort of add a disadvantage today in a way you weren't before because yeah. you don't... Kind of, it requires more sort of... You need to know about whether... Yeah this gym's marketing strategy is going to be effective and that's not particularly easy to know unless you know gyms very well. Well, in some ways, this is a great, this is a great time to be a stock picker. This means that you know, if you genuinely do have privileged insight into what's going on in a company, if you, if you, if you, if you can do that analysis, mm. that is, that's, that, that's, that's unusually valuable and you're more likely to kind of find out or to find, to find additional, additional return. Um, and certainly one of the things that we know that, that, that financial economic research has shown is that invest, companies that have concentrated investors, so that have a number of what they call large block holders, people who own like a big chunk of shares mm-hmm. in a public company, 
Interestingly, they are more likely to do R&D than companies with more distributed shareholders. And this ties back to what we are saying, because it turns out that because it's difficult to evaluate intangibles like R&D, if your attention is in 101 places, if you own shares in 10,000 companies, you have very little time to understand what's going on in company A or company B. Um, but if you're a blockholder, if you've got a large position, then you really can get under the skin and understand mm. what's going on there. And that means, in turn, that you're much more likely, if you control aspects of the board of directors, if you're an influential activist shareholder, to be willing to approve management plans for investment in R&D because you know which the good projects are. Whereas if you're a diversified shareholder, what do you know? You may as well just go on the quarterly earnings. Mm -hmm. So there's an interesting thing there that actually concentrated ownership, which a lot of aspects of our financial regulatory system discourage, is more important in an age of intangibles. And if you want to look at the kind of extreme version of that, the businesses or the, the sector which is all about highly scalable intangibles is obviously the sort of tech startup, mm. the digital tech startup sector. And if you look at what's the preferred mode of capital for companies like that, sorry, it's... Um, it's, of course, um, venture capital. And venture capital is exactly it's all that. About that. Concentrated sort of, investment, yeah. privileged information, and high-touch um, high activist investment. And going back to the sort of policy-making uh, side of things, you... you and, and let's just... Um, to finish up, let's just bring things to um, Britain specifically. Britain, obviously, is a... I think you mentioned earlier, more... We're sort of further along the curve... Of intangible um, on the intangible curve than than, than than lots of places, and we have a big service um, we have a service based economy. Um, so, is it a week? Does is what's the right way to think about that? Is the right way to think about that? Great, we are at the forefront of a change in economics. Therefore, we can sort of set the terms of it in ways other countries won't. Or is it a way to think of it that? gosh, all these terrible things that Stian writes about to do with um, inequality are just going to be so much worse here and uh, we're just more screwed than Germany for or wherever. I think, you know, this is a long-term trend that's happening everywhere. Mm. So everyone will... These, these problems will become more and more important mm -hmm. to every country over time. I think there are some advantages for countries that, that, that get with the programme quickly and that kind of adapt themselves to the intangible economy. And I think if we look at some countries that have done that really well, countries like Ireland, countries like Singapore, have actually adapted themselves pretty effectively to an intangible economy. I think a lot of people think of Ireland's economic success as being very much driven by low corporation tax, but there's a lot more to it than mm. that. Ireland has been very effective as a home for intellectual property. They've built a lot of the kind of skills that you need for an, inter for, 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 for a, um, for an intangible, intensive economy. And they've utilised a lot of their, 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 their inherent advantages, whether that's the historical links with the US, distribution channels into, in, in, into Europe, to take advantage of those kind of things. So I think the first question is, how do you make the most of this kind of thing? And a sort of classic example of that would be, let's go back to this question of the fact that the intangible economy tends to happen in particular places. If you look at places like Oxford or Cambridge or even London, places that are very, very intangible intensive, um, you'd want to let those places grow. So this would be an even, the, the, the cost of the kind of planning restrictions mm. that we have in the UK around those places, the cost of those restrictions will go up yep. over time as right. the economy becomes more intangible intensive. Right. So it's a democratic choice, but people should know but a bad the one. cost. <laughs> people should know the cost. Is it your view that lots of the, if you go to the, the common things that are wrong with Britain economically are to do with productivity, underinvestment, 
these sorts of things. Part of the story, I take it then, is that we are, because we can't measure these things very well when they're intangibles and services and so on, maybe things aren't quite as bad as people think. I think some of the some of this kind of very familiar story of Britain underinvest is somewhat mitigated by intangibles. So if you Jonathan and I worked out, if you feature in intangible investment, this kind of long worried about gap between the UK economy and say the German economy mm. somewhat closes. So that's that's good news. Um, having said that, if you think about so R and D is clearly an important characteristic uh, category of intangible assets. It's about you know tenth of, 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 of intangible investments. R&D is something where we do lag behind many other rich countries, which is one of the reasons why the government is working to try and encourage more R&D to create a better climate for, 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 for research and development. So I think there are things that, things that we can do. The awareness of the intangible economy in some senses maybe mitigates some of the things we're worried about, but it's certainly a challenge that the UK should, should, be, should be tackling head on. Okay, it's Dean Wesley. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That was Stian Westlake on Capitalism Without Capital. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.